Well, uh, what a passage. Even by modern standards, the execution of Zimri and Cosby is a pretty shocking Bible story, isn't it? It's got everything in it. It's got sex, it's got religion, it's got gore, it's got rebellion. And I wonder what your first impressions of it are. In fact, I want uh, you to imagine for a moment that you're a journalist in those days, and you've been asked to put together a headline for this particular article. What would you say? Well, maybe you're sympathetic to these two. They sound like two unfortunate lovers, an ancient version of Romeo and Juliet. They're caught in a conflict they want no part of. Your headline, um, if I can turn this on, uh, might read... Star-crossed lovers, impaled by forces outside their control. Or if you have a social conscience of some sort, you might show that their death uh, was an example of discrimination against mixed marriages. The headline might be, Honour Killing by a Rabid Priest of Israel's God. On another note, you might think their death was a result of a cruel and unusual punishment executed for illicit love. And if you believe in fair-minded news reporting, you might just write, diplomatic ties cut of a Transjordan murder of a Midianite princess. Whatever way we look at the story of Zimri and Cosby, we in the 21st century struggle to understand how a story of love and union uh, could end up in death. What kind of jealous God would meddle in a private love affair of two individuals? What kind of crazy God would seek to destroy the very people whom he had just blessed through an enemy prophet, no less, through Balaam just two or three chapters ago? We struggle to accept a God who is angry with his people. We struggle to face a God who would actually carry out his judgment of death. And yet here in this very part of the Bible, God is not the cuddly grandfather bearing gifts for his grandchildren at Christmas time. God is a warrior. He's burning with rage. He's taking retribution. He's punishing those who oppose him. What gives? I think the answer centers on how we look at God's actions. Are they the actions of an angry and capricious God who destroys as he pleases? Or are they the actions of a righteous judge whose actions are consistent with who he has revealed himself to be? Well, Numbers 25 tells us what God does to protect his honour. Let's get a little bit more into this idea of God's honour. What exactly is it? In verse 11 of our passage, a priest Phineas is commended for being zealous for God's honour. Now, it's seen... It might seem that these two words are translations of two different words, but in fact they're the same root word in the original language. And it makes some sense, doesn't it? We're zealous for a cause when we feel passionate about something and we're willing to act on it. Maybe it's the environment or affordable housing. Uh, we don't just talk about it. We pick it at protests. We write letters. We pick up the phone and call our local MPs. 
And as for honor, what do you say if you wanted to tell someone that you would keep your promise no matter what? You say, I'll swear by it. I'll swear by what? Swear by my word. Swear by my honor. We're swearing on the basis of our character and our integrity. So when the Bible says that Phineas' zeal was for God's honor, it's saying that he cared passionately about God's character being brought into disrepute, so much so that he would kill to defend it. And this really fits because the same Hebrew word is used in Exodus 34, verse 14. It's a passage where God declares his name is jealous. And this word jealous is from that same word which has been translated zealous and honor. But notice what it's linked with. It's linked with God's name. So what would God do for his honor? It's the same as asking the question, what would God do for the sake of his name? We could well turn the question onto ourselves and ask, what would we do for our name's sake or reputation? We'd fight to clear our name if we were slandered. We'd work to build up our reputation. Today's passage is all about God acting passionately for the sake of his honour, because failing to do so would mean that he's denying who he is. Failing to do so would mean he isn't God. He isn't who he declares himself to be, a righteous judge, a powerful king, and an almighty saviour. So with that background, we might begin to see why it is that Israel and Zimri's sin warranted such an angry response from God. From God's perspective, Zimri and Cosby's story was just one of thousands of God's people being seduced away from him and towards the worship of Baal, a pagan fertility god. And this unfaithfulness to God was a, a slap in his face. It's saying God's character and glory are defective. They're replaceable, substitutable. And this is totally unacceptable to God in his holiness. He is set apart. He is unique. He is above all else. There is no other God like him or beside him. And the moment we put God among other gods, our relationship with him becomes one of dishonor. And that, in a nutshell, is the reason why God behaves the way he does in Numbers 25. We need to realize that there are two sides to this. Even though it's a stern warning to all of God's people not to dishonor his name, it should also provide immeasurable comfort to God's people. Because God is zealous for his honor, he is faithful to his promises, even though his people are unfaithful. In other words, God's zeal for his honor is the reason we can be assured as God's people that his promises to save sinners who turn to him would be kept by him. And so this afternoon, we want to see through Numbers 25 how we must respond to God's zeal for his honor and be saved. We'll see that when God's zeal for his honor brings anger, we must fear him. We'll see that when God's zeal for his honor brings judgment, we must confess and repent. And we'll see that when God's zeal for his honor brings mercy, we must humbly receive his forgiveness. First, when God's zeal for his honor leads to anger, we must fear him. 
Verse 3 summarizes what's happened. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. Maybe this image of God's anger squares up exactly with your image of the God of the Old Testament, an angry, vengeful deity ready to crush you. God is out there watching for your every mistake and ready to punish you. But verses 1 and 2 give us the facts behind God's anger against Israel. Israel is trapped by sin's temptation, by sin's completion, and sin's consequences. First, we see sin's temptation. Verse 1 says, The men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The temptation that brought Israel to its knees was a classic beauty trap. At the Winter Olympics earlier this year, North Korea sent to South Korea an army of beauties. This was a team of female cheerleaders which actually numbered more than the athletes they sent to South Korea. Their charm offensive consisted of synchronized singing, banner waving, and dancing. With this imposing sea of red-clad women cheering in the stands, even the most dedicated, mentally disciplined athlete, I'm sure, would have struggled to maintain concentration. But some cynical commentators have also suggested that their very presence was far more than just about cheerleading and more about casting the North Korean regime in a softer light. Well, the Moabite deception had a similar flavor. We later see in Numbers 31, 16, that this plot had the prophet Balaam's fingerprints all over it. Moabite and Midianite women were to entice the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord. Balaam realizes that if he's powerless to touch Israel with his words, he can destroy them from within by setting a wedge between Israel and God. And it would be a two-shot plan. Number one, lure the men with physical temptation and once their hearts are softened, go for the juggler. They would coax them to leave God and commit to Baal. Balaam realized that by getting the Israelite men to leave God, to dishonor him, it would bring God's anger onto the Israelite camp. And so next we see the sin's completion. Verse 2 says, The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. What's at stake here? By eating the sacrificial meal and bowing down to the bowels, Israelites allowed a false god to take the same position of honor as God himself. Israel took the bait, was reeled in, and is caught. Line, hook, and sinker. They break the first two of ten commandments. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. And number two, you shall not make an idol and worship it. They broke the first two cardinal laws of their national covenant with God. That he and he alone would be their God and they would be his people. It's easy for us to, to stare at Israel's foolishness for taking the bait and getting trapped. But let's remind ourselves a little about how sin degrades. Even though we often think about sin in black and white terms, in terms of guilt, innocence, condemned or not, the actual experience of sin is is a gradated thing, isn't it? It's, it's in degrees. 
It's like a camera lens aperture. We move up and down f-stops, and the picture becomes brighter or darker with each stop. And so it is with sin. Rarely do we see our sin as gross rebellion against God. They begin as small, acceptable, tolerated indiscretions, which accumulate until our guilt rises and rises. Our attitudes become more and more ingrained in sinful patterns and behavior. Think of a recurrent sin you've had trouble dealing with. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's unremitting anger. And think about how they grow. We tell ourselves little lies as we commit them. We say, it's not so bad. It's just a one-off thing. Or they really deserved it. We make excuses for ourselves and justify our actions to, them, to ourselves. And as they build, these, these lies entrench into our heart an attitude of indifference to sin. We feel that we're right to satisfy our heart's desire. We might even say that we were forced into a situation where not sinning is simply not possible. And so isn't it apt that this passage speaks of sexual temptation as the way that Israel was lured from God. Because for both men and women, this sin never starts with bold-faced defiance. Rather, it starts with acceptable, tolerable indiscretions. That first look that leads to the corruption of our thought lives. That first consideration of a romantic fantasy that leads to an intoxicating obsession. The emotional emptiness that lays us prey to the physical comfort of an illicit love affair. Adultery, sex outside of marriage, these never begin with an in-your-face attempt to threaten your marriage or your personal purity. Instead, they begin with an erosion of resistance. Israel wouldn't have fallen if they were invited straight out to worship Baal. But they were weakened. Their resistance was eroded by false assurances, not just of the women who enticed them, but from themselves when they gave themselves over to seeking pleasure over God's holiness. And so we see two aspects of the story coming together. The men of Israel began to be enticed sexually by the women of Moab, but in so doing they were led to the more devastating sin of abandoning their God. And that's where we end up with sin's consequences, spiritual adultery. Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. They joined themselves as in sexual intercourse, with a God that was not truly God. And the result? The result was they unhooked themselves from the true and living God. They cheated on God. When we think this way, do we still truly think that God's anger is an overreaction? If this God was truly God, wouldn't Israel's contract breaking be a legitimate reason, not only to abandon them, but to completely destroy them? We need to take note, because this dishonor is what brings God's holy anger. And it's no less relevant for us today, because false gods abound, both in the world and inside the church. There are so many ways to put God second, third, fourth, or even last. So many ways to dishonor a jealous God. When we go for things that make us happy and proud of what we can achieve with our own hands, we easily set God aside as the great provider. When our God-given ability and hard work brings us into a position of authority and influence, our servant heart easily becomes a little tyrant, demanding from God and others 
and we forget our creatureliness before God. When we jettison God as our very great reward, we begin to seek comfort and joy in things that, that burn, that rot, that rust away. Even when we're serving the Lord in church ministries, hoping to earn others' praise, we forget our audience of one. So how do we fight this sin? I want to suggest to you that we need to be fearful of him and we need to fear him. First, we need to be fearful of him. We need to be absolutely terrified because God hates rebellion. He hates the sin that turns his people away from him. And in destroying sin, he would destroy the sinner and anything tainted by it because he is holy and no impurity can stand before him. We have to treat sin like some crazy outbreak of Ebola or some other incurable infection, bringing certain painful death. And second, we need to fear him. And by that I mean we, we need to be in awe of God. We need to come back to that realization that when we place false gods next to his name, we've already lost our way. We've forgotten who he is, simply the only creator, the only Lord, the only saviour. And so what does God do in his anger? He judges. So next, when God's zeal for his honour brings judgment, we must confess and repent. Verse 4 is where God hands down devastating judgment. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. Moses is told to round up the leaders of the people, execute them, and have their corpses exposed. This would have been the punishment reserved for the most heinous criminals. And this was done to turn away God's anger. And to our ears, this is an extreme act. And it seems also that Moses himself wasn't quite ready for it either. Because in response to God, Moses issues a command in verse 5 that actually is slightly different what God has given. Moses says, Each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peel. It's almost as if Moses is telling the judges to do what they should have done before the situation got out of hand. He's telling the judges of the people to do their jobs, discipline the people. Only it all seems a little bit late, doesn't it? Everything has already happened. The people have already run amok. Rome wasn't built in a day and neither was it destroyed in a night. See, the culture of the Israelite camp had already been building up to this moment of sin and rebellion against God. God's call to judgment may well have been in response to a collective act of national betrayal, but really it's a condemnation of the prevailing culture of the people which allowed them to be led astray. God's judgment is on Israel's failure to judge themselves. And so as it turns out, neither Moses or God's call to judgment are obeyed. It's at this moment we're confronted by the inaction of Israel's leadership and God's judgment flagrantly ignored. The Israelite leadership have failed to restrain the people and Moses is unable to move them to carry out God's judgment. And so in verse 8, because of all this, an even greater judgment falls upon the people, a plague that begins to rage among the Israelites. 
This picture of double judgment is daunting, isn't it? And I wonder whether you've ever considered in the context of your own life, in the context of your marriage or your family, or in the context of our church, how our failure to restrain ourselves, to soberly judge ourselves, can lead to further judgment. I'd like to know if you've ever thought seriously and soberly, Bankstown Church, about the culture that we're fostering and encouraging here at church. Is it a culture that honours God, or one that's slowly eroding our faith in God's authority and goodness? Do we as ministry leaders, as community group leaders, as pastors and elders, as deacons, do we serve to teach, to nurture, to cultivate a people who honours God deeply and so are kept from God's judgement? Or are we leading our people into rebellion against God, imperceptibly at first, until one moment everything crashes down? I want to suggest to you this morning that God's judgment on Israel needs to serve as a warning to us. We need to repent of the attitudes with which we serve him, with which we pursue things above him, and when we fail to judge our own lives soberly. It's hard because our judgment is clouded. We're marinating in a world thriving in anti-godness. Don't get me wrong, there's many things out there in the world which are worth redeeming in our culture. But how and where do we start putting the stake in the ground and saying, this belongs to God? Brothers and sisters, I want to suggest that we need to think carefully about all sorts of things. How to parent, how to lead, how to work, how to travel, how to rest and play. And we need to do these things from core convictions. Our thoughts need to be shaped by God's word as our ultimate authority. Our actions need to be informed by what God is teaching us in his word. So we need to think well about his word. And we need to mould our hearts in the shape of God's words. There's a point where we need to draw a line around us and say to the world, you can go so far only, but as for us and this house, we will serve the Lord. Well, the story slows right down in verses 6 to 8. It zooms in onto Zimri and Cosby. It's a story within a story because here Israel's national act of treason and God's judgment actually converge on these two people. They're not ordinary people. They're sons and daughters of those in leadership and authority. Zimri, the Israelite, was the son of a Simeonite leader and he brings into the camp a Midianite woman, Cosby, who is the daughter of a Midianite chief. As if directly defying Moses and ultimately God, the text says that they enter before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel. There's a defiance in this public action. And even as Israel was weeping in distress over their plight, the very sin which had infected their hearts was now in the midst of their camp. And so the man and the woman enter into the private part of his tent to sexually consummate their Baal worship. Because Baal was a fertility god, the way to worship him was by having ritual sex. And right at this point is the literal climax of this passage. Judgment falls on them in the person of Phineas. He actually skewers them together, which could have only meant one thing. They were already coupled together in an embrace. And with this, verse 8 abruptly ends. The plague against the Israelites was stopped. 
What's happening here is that in that moment, divine judgment is delivered through Phineas, and the anger of the Lord is satisfied. Phineas stops the plague. The death count stops at 24,000. Judgment is executed, and God's anger is satisfied. How should we respond to this picture of God's judgment executed? I know there are some of us who might feel a bit more like Moses. He's completely passive in this case. We're not inclined to bring ourselves to act with any kind of conviction on sin. And if that's you, we need to be warned by God's judgment. We need to confess and repent of our slowness to defend God's honor. And yet some of us are like the weeping Israelites. We might be ashamed or in fear of the coming judgment. We're paralyzed by guilt and inaction. We also need to confess and repent because as we do that, we begin to be rescued from our sin, from our fear, from our shame, and from our guilt. And yet for others, we remain like Zimri. God was already dead to him. He rejected God with his actions. And in a sense, all of us, whether we believe in Jesus Christ or not, have been like this at one time or another. We've all rejected him. We've all walked past him. And we ask, would there be any hope for us anyway? My plea with you today is don't ever think that your sin is too shameful, too great, too powerful for God to forgive. He makes a way, and he has made a way. And that's what the third point is about. When God's zeal for his honor brings mercy, we must humbly receive his forgiveness. It's, it's a bit surprising, isn't it? Because so far we've heard about God's anger and God's judgment, but now in the last section we hear that God's mercy is also a demonstration of his honor. And that's the amazing thing. In his perfect righteousness, in his perfect holiness and purity, God shows perfect mercy. God's mercy is that his anger can be absorbed. He provides a way, a person to deal with sin. And in our story today, his, this person is Phineas. God is merciful to Israel in sending Phineas. We see that because of his zeal for God's honor, he became a godsend to Israel that day. Without Phineas's intervention, God's anger and judgment would have completely wiped out the entire Israel nation. Who is he? Well, we meet him in verses 7 and 11, where he's formally introduced as a priest, born into the priesthood. He's the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the first high priest. This title is meant to draw our attention to the fact that Phineas performed the role of a priest. He knew of his priestly duty, he knew of his obligations, and he did it by standing between a holy God and sinners. And in this story, only Phineas acts as God's chosen instrument to show both God's holy judgment and mercy. In verse 11, God says to Moses, Since he was as zealous for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to Israel in my zeal. Phineas's execution stops the plague. He turns away God's anger from Israel. In his action is God's holy mercy. I wonder if you're puzzling over how this one man could carry out judgment and also be the bringer of mercy. It's like a double-edged sword. No matter 
Which way you touch it, you're going to be cut. And yet, this is the amazing thing about it. In being zealous for God's honor, Phineas took upon himself God's character. Because God is both holy and merciful, Phineas' action was doubly effective. Effective in his passion against sin and effective in bringing great salvation for his people. In many ways, what happened at Peor would be a mirror for Israel to return to through a long history of spiritual adultery. Again and again, Israel would fall, follow other gods, and the pattern of sin and fall, judgment, repentance, and redemption by a hero would repeat itself again and again like a broken record. And even though the Israelites had Phineas and his descendants to be a priesthood before the Lord, sin would eventually corrupt Israel's priests. Their sacrifices were limited. Their own lives were far from holy. And so in his mercy, God provides another high priest. The book of Hebrews says he is of the order of Melchizedek, not of Aaron. God sends another who would come amongst his people. And we see him in action in John chapter 2. As Jesus clears the temple courts full of people looking to profit from the worship of God, zeal for his heavenly Father's honor consumes him. Just as God provided Phineas to Israel as a demonstration of his mercy, God sent his only son on a priestly rescue mission. And like Phineas, Jesus would fulfill his mission in obedience. Only where Phineas takes away God's anger by shedding the blood of two sinners, stopping the carnage at 24,000, Jesus does so by shedding his own blood, perfect blood, as sufficient sacrifice for all humanity. Whereas Phineas' momentary zeal would be honoured by God, it would be God the Father's pleasure to see his own son obeying even to death upon a cross. And God, in his zeal for his honour, sent his son to die to show how deadly serious he is about reversing the tide of sin. Not just among his chosen people, the Jews, but people around the world. Brothers and sisters, we're left with a simple and undeniable truth. When God offers mercy, we must receive it. To reject the offer of this gospel is to dishonor God further, not just by our sin, but by our rejection of his mercy. And this rejection of his mercy takes our guilt further because at the heart of it, we're rejecting the very one whom God has honored, whom God has provided, and whom God has glorified in his resurrection. Rejecting Jesus isn't simply a lifestyle choice or a decision about what makes sense to us. It's a declaration of our position before God, whether we receive with humility his offered mercy or we reject it with stubborn defiance. This afternoon, we're faced with a God whose zeal for his honor may seem to us frightful, cruel, incoherent. He's angry with his own people. He's severe in judgment. And yet... He shows mercy. It's in this encounter that we realize that Yahweh is not a God like Baal, a God whom we fashion after our own lusts and desires. God is holy like no other. This holiness is applied to every act and word from his lips. His anger is holy, his judgment is holy, and his mercy is holy. His zeal, this frightful, exacting pursuit for his name, 
accomplishes everything that he wills. So our response to him is the same response Israel needed to have in the plains of Moab. If you've been following me, it's the same response we need to have to receive the free offer of his gospel. God does all things for the sake of his honor. And in the face of his anger, we're to fear him. In the face of his judgment, we're to confess and repent of our sin. In the face of his mercy, we're to humbly receive his forgiveness. Would you pray today that your zeal for God's honor might be restored once more?